and it serves as a great introduction to our passage this morning. So would you go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and you can find that on page 982 of the Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. But as we come down the home stretch of this uh, series in the book of Philippians, where we've gone through verse by verse, I, I find myself continually having to be reminded that um, this, along with the rest of the epistles in the Bible, is a real letter written by a real person to be read by a real group of people. And, and that there is a good chance that the person who was writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, that this was his final correspondence to this church in the city of Philippi. Paul is situated in a Roman prison where he's writing this letter from to a church that's 800 miles away, and it's a prison that he ultimately will not get out alive. He will not be freed from before being put to death. And and we've seen spots throughout the letter that Paul is aware this might happen, this might be the way it ends, which I think, as we come to the final chapter of Philippians, makes it all the more powerful. What do you say to someone if you knew it was the last time you were going to speak to them? The idea of final words carry a lot of weight. It brings us to what matters most. And what we see in this final chapter is what we've seen throughout this whole letter is that it becomes clear that Paul's desire was for this church this kind of young, growing, healthy church to find assurance in Christ in the midst of an anxious age. And and what just gets me about the Word of God week in and week out is this continual surprise that I find in preparing sermons and preaching of how timeless the Word of God is. Uh, When I'm studying it, like I don't have to work that hard to make it relevant for us. Like If you think the Bible is not relevant, I mean, with all due respect, you're probably just not reading it. Like, this is the most relevant book that has ever been written that speaks to our situation when we understand what is happening and what is being told. And, um, you know, this past Tuesday, uh, we hosted a pastor's gathering here at Grace Church. There was about 30 pastors uh, from North Jersey who were all kind of loosely affiliated, connected through the Gospel Coalition uh, in the North Jersey chapter of the Gospel Coalition. And so we try and gather quarterly for prayer, for uh, discussion, for kind of mutual encouragement, edification. And so they were all here on Tuesday. And a pastor asked me, which is a question that, you know, past- pastors often ask one another, uh, what, what's one thing I could pray for for your church? And I always struggle with that question. Because, I, I, you know, I, I don't even know how to boil it down. <laughs> you know, like I, I want to give you a thousand things, and they could say the same thing to me. Um, but what this series has really done, and I'm grateful for, is I feel like Paul has given me words to articulate what I'm always feeling in that moment when I'm asked that question. What do I want prayer for, for Grace Church? And at any given time, my prayer is that we would find assurance in Christ in the midst of an anxious age. And so Paul gets this across in a variety of ways throughout the letter. And he's going to do it again in our passage this morning, although it's going to start a little different than maybe we'd expect. So with that said, we're going to cover just a few verses this morning, chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, but we're going to start with just verses 2 and 3. 
I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Up until this point in the letter to the church of Philippi, Paul has not addressed a specific issue happening in the church with specific names. He had warned them in general of defending against a culture that's trying to persecute them. He had warned them in general of Judaizers who were going to come within their church and probably preach a false gospel. Uh, But now, near the end, it's the first time he calls out names. But the reason why he is bringing this conflict up publicly before the church, this conflict between these two women, Euodia and Syndicate, is that it is causing anxiety in the church. And Paul's love for the church presses him to bring this up. Uh, If you remember where we left off last week, we left off with uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, where Paul um, tells the church to stand firm. But look at the terms of affection Paul uses in verse 1. Look back down at your Bibles. Therefore, my brothers, whom I long and who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If anyone thinks that Paul is like this kind of cold-hearted guy, just really doctrinal, is just kind of, um, kind of uh, linear, like, again, you're just not paying attention. Like these verses are more affectionate than my wedding vows. Like, like he is just like making upwards as he goes, like my joy and my crown stand firm, my beloved. He loves this church. If there's one thing you get from the church to fill by, he just loves this group of people and the mission that they are carrying out in Philippi. And it's out of that place of deep affection that he pleads with Euodia and with Syndicate to agree in the Lord. But remember also, Paul's primary purpose in wanting to give assurance is because he's so passionate about the advancement of the gospel. He wants to see the gospel spread. He wants to see it spread in the lives of believers. He wants to see it spread to the lives of unbelievers. And a major component of the advancement of the gospel is unity in the church. You know, we don't know the exact issue between Euodia and Syndicate. And in in a way, we don't really need to know, do we? Like, we kind of get it. Oh, two Christians are having conflict in the same church. Shocking. We're not shocked by that. We know full well what is happening. But whatever it was, this is important, it was already publicly having an impact on the ministry of the church, which is why Paul is addressing publicly to the church. So if you can connect the dots here, um, Epaphroditus is the guy who carried the letter from Philippi to um, Rome to get to Paul, and he gives all this positive report, which is why Paul is so just encouraged by this church up front. But then at some point, Epaphroditus said, you know what, though? There's one thing. There's one thing that's going on. Euodia and Syneche are having a conflict, and it's starting to threaten the church. And so Paul addresses it, and in addressing it, I think it plainly tells us at least two things that I want to talk about. One, the essential need for unity in the church. And then second, the indispensable value of women in the ministry of the church. 
as we'll see in a moment, Paul personally knows these two women. And I'm sure just relationally, he wants to get them to get along. We, we can resonate with that. I, I like you, and I like you, and I just want you guys to like each other. But it's far more than that. He wants the witness of the church to be effective. And a church that is known for disunity is a church that will not be fruitful in advancing the gospel. And, and he says even beyond that, to agree, not just to agree, but that phrase, in the Lord. There is a certain kind of unity that is uniquely Christian. It's a unity with others that flows from a result of being close to God, of being in the Lord. So from that and this can be hard for us to hear, it can be hard for us to say, but if you are far from the Lord in your life, one of the things you're going to find is that you are going to be in the midst of a lot of unresolved conflict with other Christians, often. And it's going to happen. It's going to be different reasons, different manifestations, but it's going to be common. And if you draw close to the Lord... Hear me, it's not that you won't be in conflict. We're all sinners here. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. There's going to be friction. My guess is many of you right now, like you don't have to think too hard about something that this is currently playing out in your life or you know that's happening in the lives of those around you. It's not that you will not find yourself in conflict. It's that you will not rest in that conflict being unresolved. There is a sense where you will find in being close to the Lord to take on greater humility in yourself that's going to pursue unity in the church. And so when conflict inevitably does occur because others sin against us and we sin against others and there's miscommunication, it means that there is going to be a desire to find a quick path towards reconciliation towards restoration, towards confession, towards forgiveness. And even then, it might not mean everything's going to go well. But as Paul says in Romans, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all. It takes two to reconcile. And you can't control the other side. But as far as it depends on you, to agree in the Lord. And so it tells us the essential need for unity in the church. But beyond that, it shows the indispensable value and contribution of women in the ministry of the church. Think about the church of Philippi. Think about where it started when, back in week one in Acts chapter 16. Who were the first two converts in Philippi? You had Lydia, this successful businesswoman. And then you have this unnamed, demon-possessed slave girl. Both converted, both come to Christ, first two members of the church of Philippi. And then the um, two of the only people that Paul specifically calls out in this church are women, Euodia and Syndike. And for all we don't know about them, and for all we don't know about their conflict, this is what we do know. And I think Paul is very intentional about putting this in. You see what he said about them? He said, they both have labored alongside me in gospel ministry. And that word labored can also be translated fought. It's actually a military word in the Greek. That these two women fought for the advancement of the gospel alongside Paul. 
fellow workers even, he says, that um, at, at some point in the past, whether that was in Philippi when the church was starting, whether that was elsewhere and then they moved to Philippi for whatever reason, but Paul has a history with these women working, laboring, fighting side by side for the advancement of the gospel. And again, the reason why I think he's bringing it up publicly is not just because they were helpful in the past, but their unity is going to be essential for Philippi to do faithful ministry in the present. But gospel ministry of women is indispensable in the work of the local church. Hear me closely. It's not merely helpful if women are involved. It's not merely an added bonus if women are involved. But essential, indispensable. And the reason is simpler than you think, but needs to be said, is because women are not men. And as funny as that sounds, we're in a cultural moment that's starting to get blurred, isn't it? But women are not men, and more than men are just needed. So let's go back to creation. Let's go, let's get out of 2019. We go back to when God created man and woman in Genesis 1. God created not one gender, but two. Why? Because they're not the same. And God said when man was created, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's not just because Adam would be lonely. This wasn't purely for companionship. Eve was not created out of man's side to just keep him company. He could have hung out with tigers and elephants, like he could have kept busy. But God says it's not good for him to be alone. Because in God's creative design, men and women are distinct from and dependent upon one another to carry out God's mandate. And the cultural mandate that God gave Adam and Eve was to have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply, and those mandates could not be accomplished without both men and women. And so now you go to the New Testament, and we go to the New Testament version of the great mandate. We call it the Great Commission. When Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations— that is a New Covenant version of an Old Testament cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples. And likewise, the work of making disciples, which is the vision for every local church, cannot be accomplished without the roles of both men and women in the local church. They are distinct from one another, which culture says there should be no distinction at all. The Bible says that's not what it says. There should be distinction. There's two genders, not one. If God just wanted no distinction. He would create one gender. But also, he did not want to say that women would be subservient or that women would be less than or women would be not at the level of image bearers or value in the local church. And we have to avoid both of those. That they're dependent upon one another and that we as a church, if we're going to apply this the right way, we're going to try and cultivate and raise up not just men, but men and women to live out their giftings in the sense of, and, and, and carry that out to serve and build up the local church. Different roles, yes. But equal in value, absolutely. Which is why, going back to Paul, he is so concerned about this conflict. And, and, and that these two women are at odds. And so he goes to the leadership of the church. He says, you have to help here. 
you have to help them towards reconciliation because if it does not happen, it's not just going to be awkward, but the witness of the church will be tarnished and your gospel ministry will not be nearly as effective. This is the culture and the practice of a healthy, effective church. Let's keep going. Let's read verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are verses where we'll be spending the remainder of our time this morning that contain several one-liners that are kind of famous. If you've been in church in a while, you've heard all these kind of one-liners in these verses, and you often hear them detached from one another, you know, and they're talked about in isolation. But when you consider them together, like there is this clear progression of thought that Paul is building to communicate to the church. A, a progression that weaves in and out of um, a mindset that leads to action, a, a belief that translates to life. And so there's some benefits to talking about these in isolation, but we need to take them together because I think it will deepen the application for us. And so let's just kind of walk through this progression like, like links in a chain. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice if, if you've been here throughout this series, I feel like a broken record, but we just keep seeing it again and again and again. The major theme of Philippians is joy. This joy in the Lord. It's Paul's refrain throughout the whole letter. As he transitions from one topic to the next, his segue is rejoice in the Lord. It's kind of connective tissue for all these kind of different topics and things. It's always just rejoice in the Lord. It's the doorway in between the different rooms of his letter. And the underlying question when you get towards the end of Philippians is this, that everyone asks themselves in the Christian life at some point, and maybe you're asking right now, can we really rejoice in affliction? And Paul's answer, lest we forget, every single week is yes. That this is not idealism, an ideal way to live, but not really reality. It's not escapism of just trying to just turn a blind eye to the world and just think about this. This is joy in the midst of your life because that is the birthright of every believer. And so Paul anticipates, I think, as he's writing, be like, can, is it really everything, though? Like, like could, in your mind, like, what about this situation? What, what about that? And Paul just closes every loophole with one word. Always. Always, Paul, the prisoner, affirms and is showing by example that joy for the believer is bigger than your circumstance. And that joy in the Lord is not the same as enjoying everything that's happening to you. This is not fake happiness. It's not lack of emotion. This is a joy in the Lord that sustains you through circumstance. This is a joy that is rooted in our salvation a joy that we have the power to choose. And nothing in this world can overcome a believer who chooses joy. 
We've seen it from Paul's perspective a lot. Obviously, in this series, maybe you're thinking this is definitely a Paul thing. It's not realistic, but it's not just a Paul thing. In fact, I think it's best written in the Bible by somebody not named Paul. There's a man named Peter who was writing a letter of his own to a series of churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, that were under intense persecution. This is what Peter writes in chapter 1. Listen. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and look, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just speaking personally, um, in my life, there's nothing, I think I can say this, there's nothing more impactful for me than to see a believer in Christ suffering well. There's nothing that moves me. There's nothing that points me to Christ more. There's nothing that shows evidence of the gospel being true in people's life than somebody who is suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually, and still maintaining a joy in the Lord. There's no more powerful witness than that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Which leads to the second command in the chain, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness, probably not a word you used this past week in your conversation. It could also be translated gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all. So connect these two dots, right? The progression is that a believer who's expressing internal joy rooted in Christ lets that be known by their external gentleness to the world. And I think it's fair to say the most overlooked attribute and virtue in the Christian life, especially amongst men, is gentleness. Because we have bought into a lie. That to be a strong person excludes gentleness. If I want to be known as strong and convictional and confident, I can't be gentle. Gentle people don't do that. And we bought into a lie. And I think, again, I think this can happen in men and women. I think there's especially a caricature of manliness which is culturally associated with a certain rough attitude, with a certain aura about you, a firmness a removedness, a coldness, a lack of emotion. I'm just a straight shooter, just a man's man. But Dane Ortland, in his article that he entitled, Do You Want to Be Like Jesus? Be Gentle, writes this, Any immature man can be a forceful, unheeding, unloving leader. Only a true man can be gentle. This is what it's like to be like Jesus, the lion and the lamb. A ferocious joy and conviction that expresses itself in a gentleness with the world around them. My question for everybody is, are you strong enough to be gentle? Are you confident enough to be gentle? And again, speaking to myself as much as anyone else, if we think gentleness is going to carve away at manhood or leadership, 
we need to check our sources. Because we have often and most likely bought into a lie that gentleness can't be a part of that. And the sad irony is that those who pay the price most is not us, but those around us. We'll keep going on the chain. The reason why we ought to let our gentleness be seen by others and why that matters is because, number three, the Lord is at hand. There's kind of a double meaning there. I think Paul means the Lord is near to us in salvation. He's always near to us in life. But also helping us remember this life is a wisp of smoke. And the end is always near. We are always closer to glory than we think. There's one pastor down in uh, Washington, D.C., follow him on Twitter. He starts every single morning with this tweet, Christian, you are one day closer to heaven than yesterday. Which is the nice way of saying, you're one day closer to dying. (laughs) And that that is a good thing. Because at the end of this world, shows us that it's just the beginning of our eternal world. And so believer... And Christian, your future is bright, and it gets better, and eternity will never end. The Lord is at hand, which leads to number four, and this is probably the most famous of them all that you've heard over and over and over and over again, but let's read it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's a beautiful verse on its own. It's even more beautiful when you consider everything before it. Rejoice always, which will allow you to let your reasonableness be made known, which we can do because the Lord is near. And since that is true, do not be anxious about anything, but pray in everything. This is right thinking that leads to right living. This is the assurance of every believer. I said at the beginning of Philippians that one of the reasons why I uh, feel like God was just leading me to this letter to preach through um, is because, again, it's a book of assurance. And there's one thing I think we just need more individually and as a church in 2019 is assurance because we're anxious. And the only true antidote to anxiety is assurance. And the deepest assurance we can found we can have, is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Anxiety is such a massive reality in our world today uh, to the point where we have to be, and I have to be very clear and nuanced with how I talk about it. Because all people battle anxiousness on some level. And yet some people do, in the way we typically say it, um, struggle with anxiety. And and it is, I think, a form of mental illness that often gets stigmatized, often, more often in the church than not. And it's really tricky to talk about, especially in context of this verse. Because let me tell you the wrong way to to, to apply this verse is you hear somebody who's struggling with anxiety, and we just go, well, you must not be praying. If you were praying, you wouldn't be anxious. Which means this must be a faith issue for you. You should be a stronger Christian, and maybe you won't be anxious. That's the worst way to apply this verse. It's a brutal mishandling of God's word. That not all anxiety is created equal. 
there are, in a sense, a good response of angst. You see a child playing in a busy street. That makes you anxious, and it causes you to action. It's a God-given response in some cases. There is, I think, neurological anxiety, chemical imbalances that makes people prone towards anxiety. And then there is, I think, sinful anxiety that is exposed and rooted in a lack of trust. But it's not all the same. And and I don't have time to tease all that out, but if you do go on our website, on our church blog, I, I wrote a blog at the beginning of this series entitled The Battle Against Anxiety. I try to be very careful of weaving in and out of this and would encourage you to check it out. Because while a sweeping, well, you should pray more, is brutal, we have to be careful. We don't swing that pendulum all the way to the other side where we strip prayer of its power. Because prayer is needed. And I think in context, the anxiety Paul is talking about is not individual anxiety. I think we can take principles from it and apply the individual anxiety. I do that in the blog. But the primary context of Philippians chapter 4 is a corporate anxiety that the church is experiencing in their effort to advance the gospel, in their effort to be a witness in the midst of a Roman empire that's constantly trying to persecute them. Right. So a church's mission in Philippi, like it is here in Ridgewood, is to glorify God by making disciples, to know Jesus and to make him known. And that mission is hard, man. Like, that mission is hard. It's going to meet opposition. And that opposition will make us, as a church, anxious. There's external pressures from the culture. There is the threat of false teaching from within. There is internal divisions amongst key people in the church, like Euodia and Syndicate. And it's causing church-wide angst. And so Paul encourages the church Let your anxiety trigger you to run toward God. That God provides a remedy for a church that is feeling anxious, and it's prayer. And if there's anything in the Western world we underestimate most, it's the power of prayer. I'll sign up at the top of that list. All about strategy, all about vision, all about discussion, and yeah, we should pray about it. And I think if there's a topic that is misunderstood most in the Western world, it's what prayer actually is, which is so ironic because prayer is so familiar. Everyone prays, or at least says they do. All different religions, even non-religious, they'll they'll talk about prayer. And, and, and And so in that vein, consider all the questions, confusing questions that flow out of it. How would you answer these questions about prayer? Does prayer change circumstances? Does does it ever actually change the people being prayed for? And if that's true, does God change his mind? Does God need us to pray? Who can pray anyway? And how should you pray? And why should we pray in the first place? See what I mean? It's really familiar prayer. You start looking at these questions... And all of a sudden, it gets a little more confusing. And not only, I think, is it misunderstood often in the church, but our culture's reaction to people praying, if you've been paying attention, has grown increasingly hostile. And and I especially see this on the heels of a national tragedy. Uh, There's a mass shooting. There's a hurricane. There's mass forest fires in California. You'll get this wave of people who will say, thoughts and prayers for community or a state. And then 
there is this wave of pushback that has gotten larger that says, your thoughts and prayers mean nothing. I don't want your thoughts and prayers. I want action. And so for a believer, here's our question. Is prayer anti-action? For all the confusion, we turn to the word of God. And we find, even in these two verses, that prayer is as real as the anxiety that causes a need for it. And it gives us almost a solid doctrine of prayer that I want to quickly just give us to conclude our time this morning. Number one, prayer is talking to God in the name of Jesus Christ. In this way, while I believe all people can on some level cry out to God, access to God in prayer is something that only Christians have because it requires the blood of Jesus. This is what the author of preview of Hebrews means when he calls Jesus our great high priest. And no rich Rudd and I who prayed did not correlate our sermon and prayer. He prayed this passage this morning, and that's just how God works to draw us close to this passage, that Jesus serves as our great high priest who served as a sacrifice for us, spilled his blood for us, and who can sympathize with us. And then it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why we say, in Jesus' name we pray. Because that is the only name with which we can access the Father. And in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters. And sons and daughters have access to their daddy. And we have that access to pray without ceasing. We don't need somebody else to intercede. We don't need a pastor. You don't need a priest. You don't need a parent. In Christ, by faith, you can talk to God. This is the great privilege of being a son or a daughter of the Most High King. To believe in Jesus is to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ where you go from becoming an enemy of God to a child of God. If that's not a decision that you have made, that is step one, to repent of sin and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, who was raised to new life, and through him you can be saved. Number two, prayer is thanksgiving. The difference between a Christian prayer And a pagan prayer is gratitude. Think about this with me. Non-believers do not pray out of gratitude. They pray, if they do, to get something. Give me. Give me. Prayer is their magic genie. They, They go to it when they want something. But Romans 1, 21, Paul, in talking about sin nature that we're all under, that we need to be rescued from, says, quote, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. True Christian prayer is grounded in thanksgiving. Which is why Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Thanksgiving is the expression of receiving grace. And the foundation of our prayers is gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So every time we pray, the act of praying is acknowledging the work of Christ to restore us. And we should verbalize that, give thanks. Number three, here's maybe the most often misunderstood part. Number three, prayer changes things and people. When you act upon the privilege to talk to God and you do so in thanksgiving, then you can let your requests be known to God. 
And God designs it in such a way where he delights in using the prayers of his people as a means through which he operates in the world. God chooses to bring about his purposes through the prayers of his people, which, I'll be honest with you, kind of mind-blowing. I don't really fully understand it, but I trust it, that God doesn't have to use our prayers, but he chooses to. I, I can't make full sense of this, but there's one illustration as I was walking into our kitchen that actually helped paint this picture for me. My wife loves to bake, and uh, she makes things for our family. She makes things for others. It is certainly a way that she helps to serve, and she's just good. I love it. Kids love it, and she's always looking for an opportunity to do so, and there are times where I'll walk into the kitchen, and she has deployed Caden, our five-year-old, and Brinley, our three-year-old, to help her. So if you're picturing this scene in your mind, and you were to ask the question, does Rochelle need Caden and Brinley to help her? Is she relying on Caden's ability to roll out the dough? Is she relying on Brinley's skills to scoop the cookie dough and put it neatly on the pan and not eat it halfway? That's why I got stopped getting invited to these baking, all right, little escapades in our kitchen. But no, she doesn't. But she takes their oftentimes feeble attempts and she affirms it and she uses it anyway, and it brings her joy. She delights in seeing them play a part. And Caden and Brindley have the confidence that even in their feeble attempts, that mama's in control here, and mama will get the results she wants. So if you were to ask, after watching this, did Caden and Brindley really play a part? Yes. But was Rochelle always in control to bring about her result? Yes. And in the same way, that is a small, incomplete picture of what God does in this world through prayer. He delights in it. He delights in his children, praying to him and taking their feeble attempts to bring about his purposes. And his sovereign control is never compromised. So where does that leave us then? Is prayer important? Yes. Well, God's purposes assuredly prevail. Yes, both are true, and that encourages, encourages us to approach the throne of grace. Last one, almost done. Number four, prayer brings peace. Notice what the text doesn't say. Hang with me for two minutes. Notice what the text does not say. It does not say, let your requests be known, and then God will fulfill your requests as you ask. It doesn't say, if you're a good enough Christian, and your faith is strong enough, He'll say yes. It doesn't say that. In fact, what it does say is far better. Let your requests be known and you will experience peace. A kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that will guard your heart and mind like a divine secret service detail. God knows in the face of anxiety what we need is not always the answer we want in the moment. But rather, what we need is his peace. And our God's a good God. And he's a loving God. And he always gives us what we need, even when it's not what we want. Because what we need is Christ-bought peace. 
This is a little preview for us because our whole Advent series this year, starting after Thanksgiving, will be on peace. Four weeks on, on the topic. And in context here, peace is offered and given to the one praying in the act of praying. A peace of mind, a peace of heart, a resting in Christ for he is enough. This is the kind of peace everyone in the world chases, but only believers in Jesus Christ can fully attain. That when you pray, God might use it to change circumstances. He might use it to change things or people, but he will definitely use it to bring peace to you. And so the reason why Paul says pray in everything, pray without ceasing, is because we are in constant need of God's peace. And by the way, he's writing this from prison, and Paul prayed to go to Spain. He wanted to get out. He wanted to keep planting churches. And God said no. And he's the one saying the peace of God will cover you, regardless of where this goes. Assurance is the key ingredient to effective gospel ministry. Assurance in Christ will enable us to reconcile with one another in the midst of conflict. Assurance in Christ will combat our corporate anxiety in a secular world. And assurance in Christ will advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.